Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. As Mike mentioned already, we are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Matthew as we go back to this Gospel after taking some months off. Uh, we finished in September, then we took October, November, December off, and I think it's uh, time for us to get back. For the next few chapters, we will be here. The goal is to go through at least chapter 13 of Matthew before we maybe take another break. As we turn a page here to this um, chapter, chapter 10, there's another, uh, this is the second major discourse of Matthew. Matthew presents for us five teaching blocks of Christ. We looked at the first one last year, which was the Sermon on the Mount. And it took up all of three chapters, five, six, and seven. This morning we begin, well actually next Sunday, we'll begin the second discourse in chapter 10, takes all of chapter 10. We're just going to look at the introduction here this morning, verses one through five. And then later on in chapter 13 of Matthew, If you flip there, he begins another discourse, another major discourse. So the way that Matthew arranges his his, um, uh, gospel is he gives you the teaching, then he gives you the narrative, and then another teaching block, and then another narrative, and then he goes on through until resurrection. So we'll get this teaching block in Matthew 10, and then chapters 11 and 12 is the ramification of what was just taught by Christ, and then in 13 we get the secrets of the kingdom or the parables. Uh, Chapter 10 here, although very closely tied to the previous section, it marks a transition. Up until this time, Jesus had been faithfully preaching and teaching and healing desperate sinners. At the same time, he had been selecting a group of men to follow him who would learn from him Learn how to treasure him so that they would imitate him. And in this chapter, chapter 10, Jesus lays out the plan for his disciples. And we need to be careful as we come to chapter 10, much of what we find here is directly applicable to disciples. And it is only applicable to the original 12. And yet we find a lot of application for us this morning. One big truth that we learned about Christian discipleship or disciples is that discipleship exists to make much of Christ and not disciples. If we walk away with anything this morning, it is to remember this that disciples are chosen and are invited to come and participate in fellowship with Christ, to imitate, to love him, to treasure him, so that they can in turn make much of Jesus Christ, not themselves. He called his disciples to himself, that they may know, that they may live for him, that they may speak. Listen, in Christ's discipleship school, there's only one major that you can choose, and that is Christ. That is Christ, to know him, to love him, to treasure him, to speak of him. If discipleship was about disciples, then surely, friends, 
Jesus would have picked somewhere more presentable, more notable, more important than the group that he chose. For sure. Yet he didn't. Because the key to being a faithful disciple is not found in the disciple. It is found in the one who ordains, the one who chooses, and the one who sends disciple. It is found in their master. Christ is the one who calls, and he is the one who equips you to make much of him. So having spent time with them in ministry, in this chapter, Jesus gathers the 12, he instructs them, and he sends them out to preach the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They will now, as his ambassadors, step out and go on this public trip, proclaiming the arrival of Messiah. Jesus had already taught in the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples are like a city on the hill lit during the darkest of nights, which cannot be hidden in Matthew 5.14. But Christ's desire is not only for his people, Israel, to know him, to praise him, but as the Old Testament in Psalm 67 reads, let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. The psalmist's prayer for God's blessing upon the life of his people so that, quote, your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. But here in chapter 10, it must start with God's unique mission to his own people first. Israel first, then the Gentiles. So Jesus Christ, the master, the Lord of the harvest, as we read in verse 38, appoints his messengers of the kingdom, sends them forth to declare the gospel of the kingdom to a world that is enslaved by sin. As I said before, many of the details here are very specific to the 12 and apply to them in this very juncture of redemptive history. And in the coming weeks, as we will study verse by verse through this chapter, we will highlight them. But these verses also contain discipleship principles for us, Christ disciples in every generation. So I want you to begin reading with me at verse 35, Matthew 9, verse 35, and we'll read through 10, 15. Matthew 9, 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in every synagogue, in their synagogues rather, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, 
Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out and after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your blessing, greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. As we look at just the introduction to this second discourse here, I want us to, to just think about this one grand big idea and then we will un- unpack it throughout the, the sermon. I think what, what we need to learn here this morning is that ordinary men who know and follow their extraordinary master will make much of Jesus Christ. Ordinary men who, who know who spend time with their master, who follow their master, they will live for the glory of their master. Two principles here of discipleship that we find in verses one through four. Number one is this. Christ calls ordinary disciples to be with their extraordinary master. Notice what verse one says of chapter 10. Jesus summoned the 12 disciples. Verse two says, now the names of the 12 apostles before this group of people, before this group of 12 is sent out apostles, they are here referred to as disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we need to understand in the flow of Matthew's gospel here is that their calling or this summons here in chapter 10, right, is not their initial gathering of the 12. In other words, Jesus had previously gathered them to be with him. This here is their commissioning. Prior to this, something else happened when they were gathered together as a group of 12 to follow Christ, to observe him, to learn from him, to be his disciples. We talk about discipleship a lot. Disciple, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Just a general uh, definition of a disciple is to be a learner, to learn something from somebody. It's a person who who puts himself under the teaching of another. So a disciple of Christ follows Christ. He puts himself under the authority and teaching of Christ. 
Go back to Matthew 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4, flip there as we will make our way back to 10. I want you to see the process that had started before in Jesus gathering these men to himself. In 417, we read that Jesus begins his public ministry with a sermon. And his sermon is very short. It goes something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is Jesus coming out and he's publicly declaring, right, the beginning of his messianic mission. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And right after that, Matthew records for us in verses 18 through 22, the first calling of these disciples. And we here meet two uh, brothers, Peter and Andrew, and then two more brothers, right? James and John, James and John. Now, if you um, try to read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you try to put these uh, gospels or these accounts in chronological order, you will find that this here in Matthew chapter four, this is not the first time that Jesus actually met Peter and met Andrew. He met them before, according to the gospel of John chapter one, where Andrew brought Peter to Jesus Christ. And so no doubt they already had prior um, conversation with Jesus Christ here Jesus meets them in the boat. They are fishing. And Jesus says, you too, follow me. And immediately they left their nets. It says in verse 20, and they followed him. And then he keeps going. And then he meets two more brothers, James and John, in the boat with their father. And he too called them. And he says, you too, follow me. And they left their boat and they followed him. Remember, Matthew does not arrange, as I mentioned before, his gospel in a chronological order. He's more concerned with viewing this thread of the kingdom throughout all of his record. Even though Matthew is really the longest of the gospel records, he actually leaves many of these details out that Mark and Luke include. And one of the details that Matthew leaves out is that these 12 disciples had been with Jesus since before he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Go with me to Luke. Flip with me to Luke, and I think this is important just for us to mark here for us. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. He tells us in verse 12, he says this, Now, Luke, remember, according to chapter one of Luke, he writes everything in the chronological order, in its sequence. And so he says in verse 12, it was at that time that he, Jesus, went to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night there in prayer. And when he came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. And then Luke then gives us the list here. And verse 17, Jesus came down with them and stood on the level place. And verse 20, look at this. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began by saying, blessed 
are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, Jesus begins to preach the sermon which Matthew records in its entirety in Matthew 5 through 7. Mark adds another detail in Mark chapter 3, referring to the same event. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it in Matthew 3.13. He says, and Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. And why did he appoint 12? Mark says, so that they may be with him. Jesus chose the 12 so that they may be with him so that they may learn from him, so that they may follow him. If you turn to Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As soon as they were called, Matthew records, before the Sermon on the Mount here starts, as soon as they were called, Jesus begins to instruct them. He has general group of disciples who are following him and they're flimsy. They're kind of like on the outskirts, you know, they're following, they like what they hear and then they're there. Jesus feeds 5,000 and they're there. And then he says something that, that doesn't sound right to them. They're like, forget it, they go. General group of followers. But then he has this inner group of 12 who are there, he spends time with them, instructing them, teaching them directly. And in fact, the Sermon on the Mount is primarily addressed to the disciples. He calls his disciples to him in verse one of chapter five. And then he opens his mouth and began to teach them, began to teach the disciples primarily. Now, what happens on? If we continue to read Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, for instance, go there. As soon as Jesus finishes this sermon in Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 8, 14, Jesus is in Peter's house where he heals his mother-in-law. In 8, 23, if you look, his disciples are caught in the middle of the storm with Christ, and because they started freaking out, Jesus then rebukes them for their lack of faith. In 9.10, Matthew records that Jesus, along with his disciples, is having lunch with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is setting the tone for the kind of ministry he would later want his disciples to be engaged in. He says, you come here and I want you to be with me. I want you to be with me when I speak. I want you to be with me to observe when I heal. I want you to be with me when I dine with sinners so that you can observe and learn so that you can be my disciple. So these men knew the Lord. They had special access to him and they had fellowship with him. They ate, they had questions, you know, they had time to ask questions, to watch how Jesus lived. They had many opportunities to sit at the master's feet to see their master in action. And as I said, These disciples were probably with Christ for several months to a year now. And it's time, Jesus says, for you to join me on the mission. The messengers of the kingdom will go and present the message of the kingdom. They will bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No longer will Christ himself alone 
be the one proclaiming and healing, he says, now we need to enlarge this mission to my people. And remember where we ended last uh, in September in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus is preaching, he's healing, all the while seeing and understanding the devastating imp- impact of sin on people. We just read it in verse 35. Verse 36, seeing the people, Jesus feels compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Listen, Jesus is not fooled by the religious fronts. He's not impressed with all the works of righteousness that the religious folks are doing. When he looks, he sees the hearts of these people as wounded torn by sin, distressed and dispirited, literally filleted as we talked about before, skinned. They are abused even by this false religious system. They are inwardly devastated and hopeless. So the true shepherd of Israel, he gathers his disciples and he says what? Go? No. He says, you pray. I want you to pray. Then he said to his disciples, verse 37, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest, pray. Do you see all those people? Do you see all that harvest? Pray that you may feel the same thing I'm feeling. Pray that you may respond with the same compassion and grace that's motivating me to go and preach and heal. Pray that the Lord, the master of the harvest, would call and send out some laborers into these ripe fields. Why do you think Jesus wanted these men to spend time with him before he sent them out? Why do you think that he called them to be his disciples before he sent them to be apostles? They needed to spend time with the master to begin to feel and to see what Jesus was seeing and feeling. Matthew Henry once said, the best preparation for the work of ministry is acquaintance and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to be with me. I want you to see me. I want you to observe what I do. And having spent time with Jesus, he turns around and calls them to this great task. There's a conjunction and that's missing in a lot of our translations. The verse one of chapter 10 should start with and. So even though there is a transition, it's, it, there, it connects to the previous point. He says, pray that God would send out, that the master of the harvest would send out his workers and Jesus summons them. He wants them to go. So church, what do, we, what do we learn here? Well, we learn that if we're going to preach the gospel well and represent Christ to this world, then we must know him and we must spend time with him. We must feel what he feels. We must be his disciples who are in fellowship with him. You know, it's really hard to get behind someone or something that you're not really interested in, right? It's hard to promote a product you care less about. It's hard to be excited about the person 
you really have no relationship with. Jesus says, you're going to spend months with me. Learn from me. Learn who I am so that you are going to go afterwards to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and you're going to preach me. You're going to preach that they need me. And unless you're convinced of that yourself, you will never do it. So whatever we do, whatever vocation we are in, if we're going to be faithful witnesses to Christ, we must be with him often. That's the point. Disciples before apostles. We must be with him. But how? I mean, we're sitting here 2,000 years plus removed from these events where, where Jesus walked with his people. How do we then commune with Christ? And we all know the answer We all know how to commune with Christ. Just like Jesus taught his disciples, we are taught by the same word that Jesus left for his disciples. If we're going to be with Christ, we must be in Christ's word. We must meditate on Christ's word. We must reflect on his word. I mean, as disciples of Christ, right, we're, we gathered here, and for the most part, Sunday morning worship services is filled with disciples of Christ who want to learn more about Jesus Christ. As those who are called to be the disciple of Christ, is that something that you desire to know Jesus more? To grow in the knowledge of Christ? To feel what he feels? To see? To interpret this world how Jesus interprets this world? That's the mark of a disciple because through this process, you are brought closer to your maker as you read and as you learn and as you reflect on God's word, you hear the Lord instruct you. This is why we are here to worship the Lord and to be instructed by him. Another way that you you commune and grow closer to your master is is by walking in faith, by believing. I mean, Jesus put his disciples in situations where he forced them to trust him. I mean, think think about that episode where he was in the boat with them, right? Could have prevented it. No, he said, I'm... I'm going to teach you how you will trust me. Because let me tell you something. When I send you out on this mission, oh, you're going to need to trust me. You're going to need, what he tells them, specifically beginning with verse 16 through the end, you will be hated by all men. You will be, because of my sake, you will stand before governors and kings and you will have to give an account. Some of you will be killed for my name. You have to have faith in this master in order to do what they will be called to do. He tells us also to trust him, even in circumstances that that may seem dark and may seem impossible. Beloved, being Christ's disciples means being with Jesus. And we cannot witness as disciples until we have been with him. Being a disciple begins being with the master. Now, why? Why did Jesus, the master, want his men to be with him before they are sent out? Well, because their single mission, friends, their single mission is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's it. 
They weren't called to study another subject, to be good at something else, to, to major in this profession or that profession, to learn this trade or that trade. None of it. The only thing they were called to do is to learn Christ and to preach Christ. That's it. Single mission, single major, single topic, single sermon. That's all they were asked to do. And to do it effectively, they needed to know him well and to be equipped with special abilities, which brings us to the second principle here. Christ equips ordinary disciples to make much of their extraordinary master. Christ not only calls men to be with him in order to observe, to learn, to be taught, and to be trained, but he equips men so that they would make much of this extraordinary Lord, extraordinary master. It says here in verse 1 of chapter 10, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Notice first the the thread that Matthew has been weaving throughout his narrative, especially in these latter chapters, and that is that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. And at the end of his sermon, if you flip back to the end of chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, as soon as he finishes speaking and preaching the sermon, the crowds are amazed. Why? Because he's teaching them as one who has authority. And then right after that in Matthew chapter 8, in between verses 5 and 13, he displays that Jesus has authority to heal with a word. The centurion is like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't need to go. You don't need to go to my house to heal. I have authority. I tell my servant, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. You have authority. You don't have to go to my place. Just say a word, and my servant will be healed. You have authority here. 9.6, in chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus says, I want you all to know that I speak with authority, I have authority to heal, but I also have authority to forgive sins on earth. I am God, and I have authority to forgive sins on earth. And now in 10.1, think about this. What is the greatest demonstration of authority than to be able to give it to someone else? Jesus calls and he equips these ordinary men with power to do what no one else can do. They couldn't, these these 12, they couldn't turn around and pass this authority to someone else. They couldn't create more apostles. Jesus creates apostles. He makes disciples into apostles. Apostles, this word apostle means to be sent out on a specific mission to accomplish what the one who sent you decrees. So Jesus makes disciples his apostles. It's the only time that they're referred to as apostles in Matthew because this is a unique mission. Christ gave them special authority that authenticated the coming of the Messiah. He made special laborers out of ordinary men. Only Christ could. That's why, by the way, side note about apostles, there are no apostles today. There are churches 
Um, there are denominations today that would claim that they still have apostles and apostles, they continue on from these 12 apostles. There are no apostles today. No one can continue to give this authority to the subsequent generation of apostles. These men, they had specific gifts. They were giving special ministry to authenticate the ministry of Christ. They had powers and abilities for a specific purpose and for a specific season, friends, for a specific season. After the death and resurrection of Christ, during the, the formation of the first church and, and during the composition of the Bible, these very men, chosen and summoned by Christ, they continue to bear witness by performing various miracles. For instance, in Acts 2, we find out uh, that many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, through the apostles. Later on in, in Acts 5.12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. A true apostle of Jesus is appointed personally by Jesus Christ and is given divine authority to perform deeds that point back to him. That is why Paul is very specific when he defends his apostleship. Every book he starts out, Paul an apostle, except for one, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul an apostle, not chosen by man, but commissioned by God himself, by God himself. You needed to be with Christ. You needed to witness the resurrected Christ in order to become. But why this power? What's the What's the reason for this power to perform signs and wonders? Listen, friends, these disciples, they were called to bear witness to a message that is going to be very hard to swallow for any Jew, for any Jew. Israel had the law. They had the prophets. They had all the religious teachers who were telling them that the law and the prophets did not mean what Jesus' disciples told them they meant. And so Jesus here, he gives them this power in order that these signs, they might affirm the divine message and their interpretation of God's word. And the second reason, as we will see soon, these disciples, they lacked all the credentials. They needed power. They didn't have it within themselves. Notice, notice something else unique in this passage, it's the reference to the 12. Three times Matthew says the 12, his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, and then in verse 5a, these 12 he sends out three times. And they all had an, have an article between 12, not just 12 apostles, but the 12 referring to a unique title. Jesus, friends, intentionally chose 12 it's a special number. So much so that later on in Acts, when Judah betrayed Christ and, and after his death by hanging, the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles, they get together and they say, we need to fill this number. We need to select one more so that there would be 12. There had to be 12. Now, if you're a Jew and this gospel is written to the Jews, and Jews are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, and you hear 12. What are you thinking about? 
You think about the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12. You're thinking about the 12 boys of Jacob, right? That's what you're, you're thinking about. This is how God began his program in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes who were foundational to the Old Testament. And now Jesus comes in and he begins his messianic program with the 12 disciples, which are then foundational to this new entity, which will be called the church. With these 12 Jesus begins to establish a new people for himself where Christ is the cornerstone and the apostles, these 12, are the foundation. That's what Paul later on writes in Ephesians chapter two, for through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So you're you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints who are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. And we'll have more to say on this in the coming weeks as we look at this chapter. But I want you to notice in verses two through four, the names. Why these men? Why these men? This is the first and only time Matthew gives us the list where all of the disciples are listed. You know, there are, um, if you worked in HR, human resources, and you hired people for your company, there are tools that are available online best fit profile finders. You go in, you type in all the requirements that you're looking for to fulfill a job. You put in your job description and then they spit out for you the qualities of a person who would fulfill this job description. They would give you, well, you need this type of person. And so as you interview people, you're looking for this type of person. Well, let me tell you something. This, this group of men would not be ideal profile to fulfill the ministry that Christ had for them. Absolutely not. Christ operates differently than we operate. You know, draft, sports draft, basketball draft, football draft. You know who goes first? The best person. The best. You look at all the qualities like he's the best out of this bunch. I'm going to draft him. Right? Christ does not operate this way. Friends, the list in verses two through four is not given to emphasize men. This list here is not given to emphasize men. It is not given for us to name our kids after, or as one said, to name our churches or hospitals after. This list is given to point to their extraordinary master. I mean, look at this list. We don't have time to go through all the names. In fact, many of the names, that's all we know of these people is their names. But what about the familiar names? Peter, Peter, Cephas, who's always first. He's the leader of this group of 12. He's in the inner circle of Christ's disciples. Peter, remember Peter, he he ends up denying Christ. James and John are are known as here sons of thunder for their wild spirit. We we remember Thomas for his unbelief when he doubted Jesus' resurrection. We read here at the end Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. He may have been aligned with a group that was later known for its zeal for Jewish nationalism to usher in the kingdom, to rebel against Romans. 
And right next to him is this Matthew, the Jewish turncoat, who betrays his people and aligns himself with Romans. I mean, talk about pairing here, right? The zealot who is like, forget Romans. We need to establish our own kingdom. And here's Matthew. He's like, man, forget my folks. I'm out there. I'm going to go work for Romans and take advantage of my people. Based upon their innate abilities and position in life, the group whom Jesus chose to be his 12 apostles would not be the ones that we would naturally select for this mission. They lacked all earthly credentials. They weren't scholars. They had not been taught formal rabbinical training. They had not been to the seminaries of their day. But the only thing that they did, friends, was hang out with the greatest theologian ever in the history of the world, God himself, Jesus Christ. That's all he took. They were not chosen for their compatibility, for their strength, for their singular vision, for their intellectual acumen, or their social influence. This is not what these men were known for. The mission is to the lost sheep. And they're not the greatest missionaries. And think about this, guys. Jesus knows the weaknesses of, this man, of these men, and he calls them anyways. He knows they're failing. He knows their tendencies, but he says, you come over here, you're going to be with me. And you're going to be the one who will be sent out to go and tell others about me. He calls, he equips ordinary men, weak and troubled sinners to testify of their extraordinary master. Man, and that is so refreshing to know, isn't it? That with all of our sins, with all of our faults, with all of our weaknesses, lack of expertise, when we think we are so unworthy to be used by Jesus, Jesus enlists us and he equips us for ministry. You see, the talent pool has always been shallow when it comes to moral perfection. Always. God works with sinners because that's all he has to work with. Sinners. All the perfect people, friends, are in heaven. But until we get there, he chooses ordinary, imperfect people so we can display his extraordinary power through our weakness. It was true of the 12, it is true of us today, of all the disciples of Christ. We are called and we are ordained to be with Christ so that we can make much of Christ. I mean, Dan read at the beginning, 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling. Not many wise, not many noble, but a bunch of foolish men, God chosen. Why? He says, so that he may nullify all and so that all may boast in God. You see, the main character here is Jesus. In, right here in verses one through five, even though all of these names are emphasized, the main emphasis is Christ. 
He is the one who summons. He is the one who equips. He is the one who sends. He instructs his apostles to preach Christ, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. All the miraculous works that they were going to perform, every single one of them, they pointed to Jesus Christ, not to themselves. Jesus warns them that they would suffer greatly on their mission because of him, and they will be hated by all men because of him in verses 16 through 21. It's all because of Christ. These men, friends, they were summoned, they were called to put a spotlight on Christ, and they didn't need to be in the spotlight. I don't know if you've ever operated a spotlight or seen someone. The person who's operating the spotlight is never in it. Right? And so this is what his disciples are called to do. You put a spotlight on me, friend, on Jesus, and you're going to be always in the background. And they were fine with that. And we need to be fine with that. He called and equipped them so that they could make much of Christ. Alexander McLaren 19th century Baptist preacher, he says this, from the beginning, the true hero of the Bible is God. Its theme is his self-revelation, culminating from evermore in the man, Jesus. All other men, interests, the writers, are only as they are subsidiary or antagonistic to that revelation. As long as that breath blows through them, they are music. Else, they are but common reeds, Men are nothing except as instruments and organs of God. He is all, and his whole fullness is in Jesus Christ. Christ is the sole worker in the progress of his church. That is the teaching of all the New Testament. Nicholas Zinzendorf, 18th century missionary pioneer, he says this famous phrase, you might have heard of it. He says, You must be content to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We we sometimes labor hard to leave a legacy. You gotta leave a legacy. So people remember you. You gotta be content to preach the gospel. No Christ, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Here. Final passage I want to take you to. Go to Acts chapter 4. I want to see if this, if this actually was fulfilled by the apostles. How were they known after the ministry of Christ with them, after his death, resurrection? Go to chapter 4. I love this passage, this verse. It says this, Luke writes 4.13. It says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, These are the two apostles and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, common men, common folks. They were amazed and began, notice, and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Oh, that's good. They recognized one thing, uneducated, Another thing, untrained. But they also recognize something. These men, they were with Christ. They spend a lot of time with him. 
The difference with the 12 wasn't their individual, you know, gifts that they contributed, their abilities. No. The difference was that they were with Christ. And that in Acts, after his resurrection, they were empowered by the Spirit of Christ to do great and amazing things. It was not the greatness of the apostles that led to the explosion of Christianity in the first century, but the supreme greatness of Jesus Christ and his power displayed through them. When we look at these men, friends, we must realize that if God could use them, then surely he could use us and he could empower us by the same spirit as his kingdom messengers. Jesus can use any individual in his kingdom. Think about this. Are are you a naturally born leader, sometimes speaking before you think? Well, Jesus can straighten you out and he can make you steadfast like he did to Peter. Are you full of questions, maybe even doubts, hesitant to move forward at times? Jesus can train you like he did Thomas. Are you a radical political activist? Trying to overthrow, trying to do something, trying to change your nation, trying to change your state. Well, Christ can make you radically active for him like he did Simon the Zealot. Do you have this explosive personality? Well, God can tamper it like he did to the brothers. Are you unknown? Are you unfamiliar, unimportant? Feel like you're always living in someone else's shadow? You know, Christ can use you too. In your small little corner, like he used all the other folks that we read about that we have no idea any more than their name. He can use you for the expansion of his kingdom. Beloved, remember that discipleship exists not to make too much of disciples, but to make a lot of Christ. Ordinary men who know and who follow their extraordinary master, they will, they will, as we see here and we will continue to see in Matthew chapter 10, make much of Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for instructing us in your word. Help us to cling ever more to Jesus Christ, to live with him, to observe him, to study him, to feel what he felt, to see what he saw. Oh, transform us as as we commit ourselves to spending time with Christ so that we may be equipped to go out and to make much of this Lord and to proclaim him and to be ready to suffer for him and even die if we have to, like the apostles did. Oh, give us courage. Give us this confidence that people observed in Peter and John but help us to be with you. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for your church. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.